Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Surviving Empathy Podcast. I am your host, Brian Russell of Chef Bright Comedy. And today, ladies and gentlemen, how to know whether you're really an empath or not. We're going to talk a little bit about what's called empath vulnerable narcissism. It's a new thing I learned about where some empaths are actually taking on some of the traits of narcissism, and we'll talk about that. And lastly, as an empath, or any person really, how do we make life work for our sensitive heart? At the end of the day, there's financial problems. At the end of the day, there's a lacking in feeling, a lacking in quality when it comes to friends and jobs. And so at the end of the day, life just gets weird, 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 boy, and we're just looking for a lifeline to keep us hopeful. But that doesn't mean that I don't get upset. That doesn't mean that I don't get sick of shit. Oh, boy, ask Rebecca. She knows uh, I can be uh, all kinds of piss and vinegar on occasion. But at the end of the day, what it boils down to is finding that gratitude over that attitude to find what really sparks your love, sparks your kindness, sparks your joy in life. That's what it's all about. And we're so very grateful for your friendship and support, but we need you guys to dig a little bit deeper. A dollar or two amongst friends, what's it gonna hurt? At the end of the day, Rebecca and I are trying so very hard to be a resource for empaths, for mental health support, and for those regular struggling working folks to find clarity and purpose and joy in this life. That's what it's all about. But we have financial and emotional needs as well, and we need your help. We need you guys to show us that you give a crap, that you care, because we care about you guys, and it's all about reciprocity and helping good people up in this world. That's what it's all about. So if you can give just a little bit each month, we would really appreciate it. We're going to get sponsored someday, and we're doing so well, but we're just not there yet. We need your help. We need to know that you guys are kind, that you guys care, and reach out to us and help us in any way you can. And thank you so much for your friendship and support. This is going to be a good one for all the empaths out there and all those sensitive types. Grab a drink, grab some cocoa, and let's begin. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Surviving Empathy Podcast. I am your host, Brian Russell of Chef Bright Comedy. Welcome aboard, you guys, to another episode. So today, I am going to talk about how do you know you're really an empath uh, I want to talk about empaths, and uh, a new term that I learned about is called empath, vulnerable narcissism, and then I want to talk about if you're a sensitive or an empath, uh, how do you make your life work for your sensitive heart? So at the end of the day, this is empath talk. Um, not everybody who listens to this is going to be kind. Not everybody who listens to this is going to believe that being an empath is a real thing. And I want to kind of talk about that because at the end of the day, what it boils down to is that if you have a sensitive heart, whether or not you sense other people's vibes and motives or not, uh, <clears throat> I, you know, it can get exceedingly easy in this world just for being different, feeling like the, the world uh, sees you with uh, hateful eyes. You know, I was going to take some time and uh, take a couple days and relax because I'm having a little bit of a fibromyalgia flare-up today. And I went, you know, no, this is a perfect time because at the end of the day, um, most people record and most people do their content creation when they're feeling good and jazzed about life. And um, 
you know, I'm not in a bad mood or anything, but um, the problem is when I'm in pain or when I'm hurting, um, oftentimes that's where uh, I get the most of my empathic feelings about life. I get weirded out by life. I get weirded out by things that happen. You know, Rebecca, thankfully, Rebecca, uh, we went, she had, Wednesday she had of last week she had a um, colonoscopy and thank goodness everything turned out clear so we're just so jazzed about that getting older scary you know and uh, as you get older you know you're seeing article after article of people younger than you or your age or just slightly older than you passing away and it's like good grief i'm at that i'm at the dying age <laughs> and there's no easy way to talk about that but uh, at the end of the day we all worry about our mortality and uh you know the world's getting to be a weirder and weirder place and uh i was just having a discussion with a friend of mine talking about how just weird people are getting and how weird society is getting and how weird life is becoming and uh sometimes it can just snap you into this sense of weird you get the a case of the weirds and you know I just, you know, that's when I just kind of tune out, you know. I go, you know, life is weird. It's always been weird. And uh, sometimes we get this uh, hyper sensation of feeling weird about it more times than others. But, you know, that's just life, you know. It's the ebb and flow of life. And so, you know, I just, I, I tend to tune out and do some reading or uh, just focus on the things that keep me at peace. Because at the end of the day, uh, the weirdness isn't ever going away. We're surrounded by people and things that, uh, you know, aren't necessarily on our level. Uh, there's going to be weird people that hurt us and do weird things to us uh, without any real reason uh, other than they've got issues. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we have to protect our kind and sensitive heart. So I kind of wanted to start at the beginning here. I wanted to talk about are empaths real? There's an article here from psychcentral.com. Are empaths real? Here's what science says. <clears throat> and it says, how to know you're an empath, pros and cons of being an empath, and uh, what a dark empath is. Um, we've, we've done all that before. That's uh, for you guys who've been on this journey with me. We all, we, we all know what the, all that is. So we won't go too much into that, but I just wanted to read this article uh, to set things up. An empath feels what you feel and can connect deeply with you without having much information. Research on this type of person is limited, making many people wonder if empaths are even real. Does everyone seem to come to you with their problems? Do you sense when others are upset even before they do? If so, according to popular uh, conceptions, you might be an empath. But the line between a person with empathy and a full-on empath can be difficult to draw. In short, the first may be able to understand someone else's situation compassionately, while the latter may feel the pain as their own. To date, research on the concept of empaths is inconclusive at best. It doesn't mean empaths aren't real or that someone's experience as an empath is invalid. It's just It just means that there's little to no scientific proof behind the concept, and experts may not yet fully understand this phenomenon empirically. 
And I've talked in previous episodes about motor, mirror motor neurons and how we have this tendency to have a greater sensitivity, a heightened sensitivity to our awareness around us uh, that uh, helps us to uh, sense things, uh, not just through energy, but that is a part of it, but also through uh, reflectivity, where we uh, we we sense micro expressions and micro uh, movements that can help us understand a person's motives. And so it goes on to say, how do you know if you're a real empath? An empath is extremely sensitive to emotions and energy of people, animals, and elements in the environment, says Talia Bambola, a licensed psychotherapist in Newport Beach, California. They often take great joy in being able to connect to others and understand them in a special way that no one else can. The specific qualifiers of an empath are highly debated, and there's a lot of overlap among the different schools of thought. Is an empath someone who's good at the skill of empathy, or is it someone who has extraordinary skills and perceptions? In general, when referring to an empath, researchers have identified two main qualities. Number one, empathy, a skill you can develop to tune into how others feel. It could be an adaptation arising from early trauma or an unpredictable environment. Some may hyper-attune to those around them to stay safe. And I've talked about that a little bit, where we uh, anybody who's lived a traumatic life or has had a difficult life has a tendency to be hypersensitive to uh, not only pain and suffering of others, but also uh, attuned to dangers or possible dangers around them. And that makes us hyper Um, sensitive to our environments to protect ourselves, frankly. And number two, sensitivity, an innate personality trait related to sensory processing ability. Heightened sensitivity can change how you experience the world around you. And then this article talks about Dr. Judith Orloff. Any empaths probably know that name. She uh, is a doctor. Dr. Judith Orloff's work on empaths. The term empath was popularized by psychiatrist Dr. Judith Orloff, author of the best-selling book, The Empath Survival Guide, Life Strategies for Sensitive People, Thriving as an Empath, and Emotional Freedom. I have the book, and it's really good. According to Orloff's work, some signs of someone being an empath may include absorbing other people's emotions or stress, which I do a lot, (laughs) even my wife, uh, getting easily overwhelmed by stimuli and multitasking, guilty, (laughs) getting anxious or physically ill when people yell. Um, Yeah, some people, uh, their energy is so off that it can be very off-putting. Preference for small groups or towns over cities, uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> Accurately picking up on subtle changes in tone, facial expression, or body language in other people. And that's what I was kind of talking about, is that we don't just pick up on energies, but we can feel the tone shift in a conversation or in somebody's attitude. You can tell when they've gotten, t- they've tired of you, or they've, they've tuned out from you, or, or you can tell when they're taking on a hostile or aggressive tone. And lastly, requiring a lots of alone time to replenish, and that seems to be me as well. I need several days sometimes just to feel centered after emotionally or energetically exhausting myself. The discovery of mirror neurons in the brain may be one biological explanation for this, says Bambola. Hey, that's what I said. <laughs> Research shows mirror neurons may help us mimic or mirror the emotions of those we come in contact with, she explains. 
there are certain people who have either more or more active mirror neurons than others, which could be a case for empaths. And I've done entire episodes on this, so you can always go back and look at it. Um, but uh, we talk about uh, the science behind being an empath. I think it's in season one, I believe, but it's the science of being an empath or something of that nature. Uh, but but do go back and take a listen. Um, we talk all about the science and the motor mer- the mirror motor neurons. In rare cases, being an empath may refer to intensely heightened perceptions. Roughly 1-2% to of people can feel sensations on their skin while while watching someone else be touched, a phenomenon linked to empathy and known as mirror touch synesthesia. And I've heard that that can be very common with people who are very close, especially like twins and such. I don't don't perceive other people's touch as my own. Um, That's pretty rare and extreme, um, but uh, but I do sense energies and intentions. I sense uh, people's uh, sort of uh, tonal shifts, uh, aggressive shifts, things of that nature, and I can also uh, sense uh, sadness and, and stress and anxiety, either from an individual or from uh, my surroundings, uh, you know, that could be a, an accumulation of society or uh, wherever you're at. Um, it's hard to always localize where that's coming from. Dr. Uh, Elaine Aaron's work on empaths. Psychologist Dr. Elaine Aaron estimates that roughly 20% of the population may fit the bill for being a highly sensitive person, a concept often linked to empaths. Research suggests that high sensitivity isn't a trait exclusive to humans and may offer an evolutionary advantage for several species as well. Some signs of HSP may include feeling emotions deeply, Strongly moved by art and music, guilty, triggered by loud noises, yes, often called sensitive or shy. Not usually, but uh, I do have a duality, uh, introversion and extroversion that I can tune in and out of, but uh, we'll go into that later. Uh, Overwhelmed by large crowds, uh, possessing a rich inner world, absolutely. Uh, Having grown up as an only child, I had a very rich internal life. Sensitivity to lights, sounds, textures, caffeine, or medication, and uh, staying away from violent media. Now, I can watch a horror movie, and uh, while it can unnerve me, especially things like Hostel and that gross stuff, the the torture porn and all that, um, but uh, I grew up on movies and movie making, and so... As a kid from the 80s, I kind of had this, um, you know, kind of slow, um, I don't know, slow saturation in movie making and movie gore. You know, I had a subscription to Fangoria and all that. And so to this day, um, I am more uh, assaulted. My senses are more assaulted by real stuff like the news, especially if it's violence, especially if it's, um, you know, some form of tyranny. Um, especially if it's somebody getting hurt. Um, but in movies, eh, I think my brain understands that it's not real. And uh, as somebody who's pre-med, who has worked in a, a human pro-section theater, um, <laughs> believe it or not, I've seen a, a couple dead bodies in my life. And, um, you know, I, I can tell what's real and what isn't. But uh, my point simply is, is while I 
didn't I grew up as a sensitive and I always knew I was. Um, I also learned an inner toughness through uh, my time uh, as a pre-med student for three years, as well as my time in phlebotomy school, as well as my time in the army, and as well as my time as a chef. I also learned to fabricate meat. And so I guess you could say that um, empaths have to uh, sort of learn how to live in the real world. Uh, we don't always get a choice in uh, what we're exposed to. And so I've kind of learned to have a thick skin when it comes to certain things. But uh, there are certain things that really do get to me, and that's real-life pain, real-life struggle, real-life people getting hurt um, or violently attacked. That stuff I can't deal with very easily. It's it's not good. It's not good for your soul, and it's not good to watch uh, over and over again. So, yeah, we try to stay away. And then it goes on to say, overstimulation or overarousal of the nervous system are hallmark indicators of an HSP because their symptom is hypersensitive and responds to stimuli, including stimuli others may not detect or be able to tune out, says Bombola. And then it asks the question, empath or highly sensitive person? Because there is a difference. Semantics don't necessarily matter, says Kaylee Friedman, a licensed counselor in Los Angeles. It's perfectly beautiful if identifying yourself as an empath or a highly sensitive person uh, makes you feel seen and self-accepting and helps you care for yourself and work with yourself in a way that's supportive. In that case, those labels are absolutely great. She says, and that's what I tell people. If you want to identify as an empath or a highly sensitive person, even if there's a subtle difference, it doesn't matter whatever makes you feel good about yourself. It really doesn't matter. And she says, uh, if we are using the labels of empath or highly sensitive person to not work on the things that cause us pain, then I don't uh, know that that's so helpful. So I think what she's saying is, is um, if these things are detracting from our uh, happiness or our mental health, uh, then maybe we should get out of the habit of those things, you know, because we do introduce ourselves energetically to a world uh, where we can not only open ourselves up to scrutiny from other people who don't understand, uh, but also uh, we might uh, find that we're um, avoiding certain mental health um, cures, if you will, mental health uh, support to ourselves when we avoid certain things, and uh, perhaps we can exacerbate those mental health problems by not identifying what underlying might be going wrong there if it isn't HSP or being an empath. And then it goes on to say, uh, pros and cons of being an empath. If you're highly sensitive or consider yourself an empath, you may feel that being so deeply connected to the world around you has many benefits and drawbacks. So here uh, are some uh, that you may relate to. Uh, Pros. Deep and strong relationships, uh, great intuition and lie detection. Yep, I'm a I'm a bullshitometer. <laughs> I'm a human lie detector. Um, heightened life experiences, so you might just experience life more profoundly than other people. People regard you as a good listener. Uh, compassion and regard for other people and living creatures. So at the end of the day, you know, being an empath, you should be proud of it because it means you have a deeper, richer life and a deeper, richer connection to the 
others around you. Uh, but then there's going to be a lot of people where it does open you up to scrutiny, especially by uh, emotionally uh, immature people or uh, intellectually immature people, people who, who, who lack emotional intelligence. A lot of times they, they're, they become skeptics and cynical and then they can be assholes and then we have to fight off. You know, the tyranny of sociopaths and narcissists and all those uh, unlikable, unkind, immature people out in society who, uh, frankly, we should uh, cut ties from uh, immediately. (laughs) Okay, and some of the cons. Difficulty setting emotional boundaries. This can happen a lot, especially because people come to you. Uh, A lot of times it's hard to set your emotional boundaries where you need your own time and space for your own problems. And so a lot of times people will come to you and maybe you just don't have the time or maybe you don't have the 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 emotional depth uh, uh, to help them at a level that they need help. So maybe it could be causing a lot of undue stress and burden because you can't help them the way they need help. Often feeling uh, drained or exhausted, particularly after interactions. Yes, I get that way. Uh, Leaning towards isolation to recover. Uh, Very much me. I'm in isolation mode right now. Uh, I live a very quiet, isolated life. Even though I do have a lot of friends, I often remain, um, I don't know, mostly neutral where I let them do the calling. Um, You get to a point where friends don't call you enough. And uh, for a while, that can hurt your feelings. And then you start to realize that... um, you prefer it. So (laughs) it doesn't mean that they're not friends. It just means that sometimes we set those time and space boundaries. And it goes on to say, it's not uncommon for empaths to feel overwhelmed much of the time. In her own experience, Friedman came to discover that much of what she labeled as being an empath was an anxious attachment style, trauma response, and signs of codependency, she explains. With some healing work, she now has a different way of uh, connecting with others. I'm still empathic, but I don't feel out of control or like I don't have a choice in my own experience, she explains. I can stay in my own experience while being with someone who's having a difficult time without taking on their feelings and problems as my feelings and problems. And that's exactly it. You know, I have a friend who's like, well, I don't want to burden you with this, you know, energetically. I'm like, no, no, I can handle it because um, just because they're having problems doesn't necessarily mean that they become my problems. Oftentimes people assume when you're a sensitive that it, that it means you're weak or you can't handle things. Quite the opposite, really, is that you have the strength and maturity to handle a lot, including your own problems and including a heightened sense of sensation and awareness around you. And so at the end of the day, uh, a lot of people are like, well, I don't want to burden you with my problems when really, um, it just depends on the person. Uh, some people, I, I'm like, no, no, let me, you know, I'm all ears. Let you know, get, I'll give you a shoulder to cry on. And that's why, as an empath, as I grew stronger, uh, I was able to not only uh, filter and block out all the bad stuff, but uh, I'm also at a point where I can be quite extroverted and, and live a very normal life, even though I have this sort of burden of being an empath. So it goes on to say working with a therapist can help you cope with the drawbacks of being an empath. Um, And and really, it would depend on the um, 
the therapist because some people might think that it's uh, oh well we're not allowed to assign that you know we're we're not allowed to admit that's a real thing and therefore I don't want to uh, you know go get into this uh, I don't want you to start going into this fantasy where you think you're this thing that you're not in other words some people just don't think it's a real thing and oftentimes they can be more uh, of a problem than a solution because they try to tell you well I don't want to um, placate your fantasy so therefore. Or, uh, I'm going to uh, tell you that it's not real, even though it is. So we have to be careful who we choose as our therapist. And this is where it gets really interesting, you know, because Rebecca is very much an introvert. Empaths versus introverts. Empaths and introverts may enjoy alone time to recharge. Still, introverts may not be able to feel other people's emotions as their own or may not be necessarily skillful when it comes to empathy. So at the end of the day, um, a lot of times being a an introvert is a sign that you are in tune, that you are attuned to being an empath or being a highly sensitive person, but it just might mean that uh, maybe you're not trained yet. Maybe you haven't taken the steps necessary to become a realized empath where you've empowered yourself with this ability. And then it just goes into what is the dark empath? I've talked about this before. Narcissism, Machiavellianism, psychopathy. A dark empath may uh, be able to read you, but may use this skill to achieve means achieve a means to an end. For example, they could use cognitive empathy to study you and match your desires, then take advantage of your vulnerability for resources, money, or social connection. So at the end of the day, a dark empath has the ability to be an empath, but might use it for nefarious purposes, or at least self selfish purposes. And then lastly, it just says next steps. There's no scientific evidence that empaths are real. However, if you're a highly sensitive person or feel you may easily tune into other people's emotions, you may identify with the term. There is still some debate about what the concept of an empath means, but it may involve a highly developed skill of empathy and the trait of sensitivity. If being highly sensitive or deeply insightful overwhelms you at times, you may want to seek the support of a mental health professional. And then it just lastly says, if you find unhelpful coping mechanisms, you may want support to work towards being in a healthier balance with those parts of yourself, bringing your skills into balance so they're supportive rather than harmful to you, Friedman says. And so at the end of the day, what it boils down to is that not everybody is going to be a kind lover or carer or healer that some people might say oh you're an empath huh interesting and then go talk shit behind your back so um, being able to identify people who are cynical or skeptical who don't have your emotional best interest uh, is very helpful to make sure that you at least avoid uh, conversations about being an empath with them or at at most um, uh, getting rid of them in your life altogether if they're not good for you. And so next here, I have uh, an article that says uh, it's called, it's from Psy Post, PSY Post. Studies suggest that highly sensitive persons exhibit characteristics of vulnerable narcissism. And this is where, you know, a lot of empaths are like, hey, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a second, you know. And so you have to realize that the reason why I'm reading this article is because I want empaths and highly sensitive people out there who are learning all about this to realize that sometimes uh, we can get a heightened sense of ourselves and get kind of full of ourselves and we got to keep ourselves humble and in check, okay? 
It says here, high sensitivity is typically viewed as a positive trait, while narcissism is viewed as a wholly negative trait. Yet, a pair of uh, studies published in the Journal of Clinical Psychology suggest that the characteristics of highly sensitive people and vulnerable narcissists share substantial overlap. The studies were conducted by researcher Emmanuel Jock and his colleagues who were intrigued by the apparent similarity between certain features of high sensitivity and narcissism. The term highly sensitive person was coined by Elaine Aaron from the last article in 1996. The The construct describes people who have an increased sensitivity to sensory stimulation and are more easily overwhelmed by stimuli. People with high sensitivity tend to view the trait as both a blessing and a curse. Yep. (laughs) While high sensitivity gives them unique abilities, it also makes uh, navigating society a challenge since they have different needs. Quote, A number of people identify with being highly sensitive, said Jacques, a researcher and clinical psychologist at the Medical University of Graz. Uh, While the concept is certainly appealing as it provides a biologically oriented explanation for the respective aspects of one's personality and emphasizes their adaptive qualities, identifying as highly sensitive might also stand in opposition to personal growth in certain aspects. It goes on to say, Jacques and his team proposed that this sense that one is uh, different than others may lead highly sensitive people to feel they are special and more deserving of special treatment. These features, the author says, calls to mind two fundamental characteristics of narcissism, entitlement and self-importance. Moreover, the vulnerable facet of narcissism involves the sensitivity to social stimuli, which resembles the sensitivity to external stimuli seen among highly sensitive people. To quote here, contents of online forums as well as clinical experience suggest that those who consider themselves highly sensitive might also display self-regulatory mechanisms which are characteristics of hypersensitive narcissism or more generally vulnerable narcissism, Jacques told SciPost. In a pair of studies, the researchers explored whether the constructs of high sensitivity and vulnerable narcissism share common characteristics. Two separate samples of 280 adults from Germany and 310 adults from the United Kingdom competed, uh, completed online questionnaires that assessed various personality characteristics as well as psychological and somatic symptoms. Both samples completed the highly sensitive person scale which assessed participants' tendency to feel overwhelmed or an ease of excitation, uh, sensitivity to external stimuli, low sensory threshold, and sensitivity to aesthetic value or aesthetic sensitivity. They also completed two measures of vulnerable narcissism via the hypersensitive narcissism scale and the brief pathological uh, narcissism inventory. So these were two tests that he ran uh, specifically to see if people who claim to be highly sensitive also might pass as uh, a low-key narcissist. In both studies, high sensitivity was positively correlated with hypersensitive narcissism and vulnerable narcissism. In particular, the ease of excitation factor was most strongly tied to the two measures of narcissism. There was also evidence that high sensitivity shares the entitlement that is characteristic 
of narcissism. In study two, uh, overall HSPS scores were tied to vulnerable-based entitlement, as were the ease of excitation and low sensory threshold factors. Uh, Quote, this likely indicates that highly sensitive individuals, to some extent, hold an attitude of, I am fragile, so I deserve to avoid any discomfort, similar to those who display hypersensitive narcissism, the author wrote. Again, in both studies, high sensitivity and narcissism shared ties to neuroticism and introversion, and neuroticism explained a large part of the covariance between the two traits. Both traits were also linked to a greater symptoms of psychological distress and a higher likelihood of mental health diagnoses. Quote, our studies showed that high sensitivity and hypersensitive narcissism are not the same thing, but they do have significant overlaps, Jock told Cypost. In particular, they do share self-regulatory mechanisms which likely counteract personal growth in the long run. This is particularly true for individuals who show strong ease of excitation, a characteristic of high sensitivity which circumscribes irritability by external stimulation, paired with an attitude that discomfort must be avoided. Quote, one of the main suggestions for clinicians working with patients who consider themselves highly sensitive or for readers who see aspects of high sensitivity in themselves could be critically to critically evaluate aspects of a high sensitivity mindset with respect to the extent to which they really benefit the individual. The researchers said that their study is not an attempt to pathologize high sensitivity, but rather to study all aspects of high sensitivity and narcissism, including the favorable and unfavorable aspects of it. Quoting here, we wish to emphasize that we try to regard neither of the constructs as pathological or normal in nature, but instead try to study them as what they are, including more adaptive aspects alongside potentially more problematic ones, Zuck explained. We believe that only a perspective facing both desirable and undesirable qualities of one's personality in an upfront manner allows for individual growth. A limitation of both studies was that uh, personality traits were assessed using self-report questionnaires, which tend to be less accurate than clinical reports. The author said that future research might try to gather outside reports in addition to self-reports or even obtain behavioral data via experimental diagrams. And that's pretty much the end of the article there. It just kind of goes into a final uh, work. The study, do highly sensitive persons display hypersensitive narcissism? Similarities and differences in the nomological networks of sensory processing sensitivity and vulnerable narcissism was authored by Emmanuel Jacques, J-A-U-K, Medita Knoedler, (laughs) K-N-O-D-L-E-R, and Julia Fretzel and Philip Kansky. So, at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, um, it's just something to consider, right? You know, if you are young and impressionable or you've grown up in a very sort of traumatic or, or depressing household or you have a lot of uh, emotional things on your plate, it's something to consider. I mean, at the end of the day, um, what I want my empaths and highly sensitive people out there to keep in mind really is just to be aware of it, just to be aware that you're not accidentally making yourself more sensitive than uh, is, you know, 
that, that, that is uh, useful in the real world, if you will. Because at the end of the day, we have to adapt to the world. The world doesn't always adapt to us. And until being an empath uh, becomes labeled as a sort of a mental health diagnosis, uh, we're going to continue to live in this world whether they believe in us or not. So, at the end of the day, we have to make sure that being an empath isn't cradling or coddling us in such a way where we avoid any hardships or we avoid any danger. And that kind of goes into what I was saying in a previous episode about, you know, empaths talk about avoiding the news outright. It's like, no, you don't want to avoid it outright. But um, but if you're getting too much bad information or if, or if it's energetically um, making you feel terrible, then, yeah, you can back down from that. You don't have to listen to the 24-hour news cycle all day, every day, but uh, to keep it, you know, within balance. You know, but but what what do I think about this? Do I feel offended? Do I feel personally attacked by it? No, I don't. Um, empaths are fragile people. Empaths can be very sensitive uh, emotionally. They can be a very sensitive bunch to their surroundings, and uh, oftentimes they have to live in a world where they sort of pad themselves, filter out some of the harsher aspects of life, so that they can live a, a world in a world where uh, they feel like they have hope and where they feel like they have goodness and kindness and sensitivity. At the end of the day, you know, empaths just want to know that we're living in a world where empathy is real and that other people have it. We just want to make sure that we're not living in a world taken over by sociopaths who have no greater understanding of of compassion and sensitivity to others, you know. And that's why, you know, I think a lot of therapists, depending on their point of view, would either say, well, we got to remove this aspect from their thinking because it's messing up their mental health, because we don't believe in this poppycock nonsense. We don't believe highly sensitive people and being an empath is a real thing. Therefore, we're going to go take a, a sort of a, a excising approach where they want to excise the, the the bad thought out of your brain and and then uh, supplant something new in there. Um, but at the end of the day, I assure you, being an empath or calling yourself highly sensitive or being an empath is not the causation of any mental health problems, but it, there could be a correlation in the sense that you're picking up on vibes and energy and maybe you're just overthinking it. You're, you're allowing yourself to give in to your hypersensitivity and therefore you notice it more and therefore your life becomes more cluttered, full of uh, uh, stimuli that uh, you perhaps is just overwhelming your senses. So, in conclusion with all that, it just means that empaths have to make sure that they're not uh, uh, filling their heads up full of, I'm an empath, I'm a sensitive, and therefore I have to avoid all tough things in the world. Because I assure you, you will get eaten up alive if you don't learn how to cope with real life in the real world as it really is. But that being said, that doesn't mean we have to go out of our way to find narcissists and sociopaths and predators uh, to have bad jobs and people treat us like shit. At the end of the day, we deserve respect. We deserve, we all deserve respect. We all deserve to be treated fairly. And so there's this fine line between uh, knowing your rights and knowing uh, what's fair and uh, being hypersensitive. In other words, making people live up to this hyper awareness of your gift, if you will. They're not going to do it. <laughs> you know, the thing that I've learned about being an empath is that we are usually introverts, if not ambiverts. 
and we're usually uh, emotionally intelligent people. And so, as emotionally intelligent people, if we're going to learn and grow from this gift that we're we're given, if you will, or born with, or however you want to state it, um, we have emotional intelligence. And so, how do we improve our emotional intelligence to deal with this hypersensitivity? So, I have an article here uh, about emotional intelligence. It's from Inc.com. That's I-N-C. Seven smart phrases people with high emotional intelligence keep saying over and over and why. So it starts off here, what is emotional intelligence? How do you improve yours? Why should you even care? And it goes in here, it says, personally, I'm more likely to do things if they're easy. That's why I'm a big fan of the simplest emotional intelligence improving idea I've ever come across. Memorizing specific words and phrases that leverage emotions in positive ways to make it more likely you'll achieve your goals. Over time, these phrases become second nature. You begin to notice why they work. It's sort of like learning phrases in a foreign language phonetically, only to realize after using them for a while that you better understand what they actually mean and how to spell them. And it says, enough preamble, let's dive in. Here's a, here are seven smart, simple, specific things that people with high emotional intelligence learn to say reflexively over and over. Number one, let's think about why. Why is a magic word. It's like a linguistic can opener that pries motivations free and separates emotion from objectivity. Why are we all competing to buy the same product? Why am I working so hard on this one particular project? Why am I so quick to respond when this demanding client asks me something of me? Why am I still working late nights and weekends when my family would rather have me home? Why is the person in that car yelling at me? <laughs> so it says, people who challenge themselves to ask this question over and over, both silently to themselves and out loud, are more likely to find the things that they're emotionally motivated to achieve and to avoid the ones that they don't. And when they find unhealthy emotions acting as the driving forces, they can look elsewhere. So, you know, that's really just like, why do I put up with this shit? Why do I let people walk all over me? Why do I let certain people uh, have more than their fair share of my time? Why, why, why? And when we ask the why questions, we start sticking up for our rights and our responsibilities because a lot of times, especially at the workforce, uh, people have you doing jobs that's not a part of your scope of practice. So understanding your scope of practice helps you understand your rights and what you should and should not be doing at the job. And you ask yourself, why? you give yourself permission to set boundaries for why some people take advantage of you. And number two, thank you. Also, please, and you're welcome. Politeness costs nothing, but people with high emotional intelligence understand that gratitude is one of the keys to happiness in life, which can only leave people feeling good about those who express it to them. And then it says here, bonus point number one, Find opportunities to end conversations with expressions of sincere, uncontroversial thanks. Emphasis on uncontroversial. Think like, thank you for taking the time to talk, as opposed to, thank you for coming around to my point of view. <laughs> Bonus point number two, saying you're welcome instead of more dismissive phrases like, no problem, acknowledges that you've done something for someone else 
that is worthy of gratitude. It's a trigger for positive reactions in others. They're such short phrases, and we use them all the time, but emotionally intelligent people do so intentionally, going into conversations, looking for an opportunity to repeat them because they learn how powerful they can be. And I have to agree, you know, um, you know, as they say, you get more flies with honey than you do with vinegar, you know. Number three, no thank you. (laughs) Yes, I listed this one next because it's the seeming opposite of the previous phrase, but good fences make good neighbors and healthy boundaries make for healthy relationships. Abso-fucking-lutely. In short, people with high emotional intelligence understand that saying no when you're offered something they don't really want, whether it's a business opportunity or an invitation or a flyer on the street, is a mark of respect to other people. It says, basically, you respect your time and you're going to respect other people's time as well. Now, note how this uh, connects to the very first phrase in this list above. You have to challenge yourself to ask why enough times to understand the things you should politely say no thank you to. And number four says, can I see if I understand? Question mark. Can I see if I understand? There's a lot of power packed into these six words, and emotionally intelligent people appreciate why. First, no matter what happens after this sentence, you've signaled to someone else that you care to make the attempt to understand where they're coming from. You're not assuming you understand, and you're not ignoring them. You're making the effort. Second, uh, the fact that it's phrased as a question, chef's kiss, There's emotional power in asking permission like this, and it likely gives you leeway as you articulate your understanding. Finally, it's powerful because if you're asking to to understand, you're not saying things that are less effective at building rapport. For example, summarily assuming, look, I know how you feel when you may not. Whether we're talking about people's deep convictions or their experiences or even the details of a supply they need to purchase or uh, driving directions, everyone wants to be understood. But most people also understand how difficult it is to do that if you truly mean it. So you start with the question, can I see if I understand or let me see if I understand this? So you basically articulate what you think you understand as a test and you'll be amazed at the results. And I think what he's just saying there is that when you uh, give people the time of day by saying, I think I understand, and this is the part I understand, uh, it lets people know that you're engaged and listening and that you actually do understand what they're talking about. Number five, I make this mistake all the time. Quick background on this one. People with high emotional intelligence understand that if you want someone to agree with you or to choose the course of action you want them to follow, it makes sense to make it easy for them to do so. It sounds basic, but this is the exact opposite of the way many people try to persuade others to do things, basically by brute force. Just imagine the emotional reaction you'd have to someone saying each of the following two things to you, and uh, comparatively how likely you uh, be willing to go along. Example number one, I can't believe you were so foolish to make that mistake. You need to fix that right now. Versus... Example number two, I make this mistake all the time. It's so easy to miss. I wonder if you'd check and see if you might have done something similar. See, so what you're doing is you're identifying your own personal experiences, showing that you're human, showing that you're humble, and that you're not trying to tell them what to do. You're simply saying, oh, I do this a lot too, and I get it. 
The article continues, see what I mean? Granted, I make this mistake as a bit of placeholder phrase on this list. The point is to use your words to create emotional safety valves that make it easier for people to shed negative emotions in a situation and simply act in your interest. By starting out by stating that you often make the very mistake you're about to discuss suggests that there's not an issue of moral failing or superiority here, warning, bad emotions, you're just looking for answers. And like I said, um, you know, when you relate to people as people, they're much more willing to work with you than if you try to uh, act like they're superior. Number six, can I ask for some advice? Uh, if there's a beautiful, if there's a person on this beautiful planet of ours who isn't flattered when asked to give their advice, I haven't met them. <laughs> so almost no matter what else you follow this question with, people with high emotional intelligence know that it's geared to trigger a warm response. But there's actually a centuries-old technique attached to this in that people are also hardwired to want to be able to help others, or at the very least, to know that they could help others if they wanted to. Uh, ben Franklin wrote about this phenomenon in the 1770s. Bottom line, the request suggests that others have or know something you don't. Emotionally intelligent people know that increases pride and interest and maybe a willingness to cooperate. Again, People get more flies with honey than with vinegar. <laughs> and it says here in quote uh, in parentheses, bonus level on this one. The next time you see that same person, I took your suggestion to blah, blah, blah. They will find that flattering. Number seven, I expect a lot from you. We'll end with a phrase that's truly next level because it probably presages something negative, but it works anyway. In short, these six words can only be taken as a compliment, but they're very likely to be followed by something more difficult. I expect a lot from you, but you came up short. I expect a lot from you, and that's why I'm so disappointed. I want you here because you're amazing, and I need to know I can rely on you. I think a lot of these are workplace things, you know, it's how to talk with people of different backgrounds, but it, it also carries over into real life as well. On Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert podcast, Bill Gates once explained how this kind of approach was key to his leadership style at Microsoft. Actually, Gates used a slightly different phrase, the reason you're here is because you're amazing. But as you might expect, it was often followed with something like, but you're not meeting expectations at the moment. These kinds of phrases are designed to leverage other people's pride and even guilt to get them to perform. Actually, this is a great example to leave things on because it illustrates how practicing emotional intelligence doesn't always mean being nice to people. Uh, that, uh, that can be a great side effect, but it's not always the ultimate goal. And then this is where the writer says, instead, I write in my free ebook, Nine Smart Habits of People with Very High Emotional Intelligence. It's all about leveraging emotions, both yours and other people's, to make it more likely you'll meet or achieve a goal. Now, at the end of the day, I mean, that's the thing about being an empath is that a lot of us learn about our sensitivity or we learn about our uh, empathic qualities at a very young age before we're fully grown. And uh, that article's done there, by the way, and I just want to give credit to the author here. Let me find him. It's by Bill Murphy Jr. Um, if you want, I can uh, uh, 
message you, uh, private message you guys if you want that link for that free ebook. Um, but the point is simply that um, a lot of this stuff always seems to pertain to the workforce. But see, I know my audience, even the younger people who are learning and growing, um, uh, they're learning that their sensitivity oftentimes takes hold of them, and they don't always know how to empower themselves, especially in adversity. And in the workforce, it's all adversity because when you're young and you're learning and growing, uh, oftentimes people don't treat you right. Oftentimes people will be mean or cruel or say things the wrong way. And a lot of times people take advantage of you. They, um, they don't know. You have to learn to set boundaries with people, especially if they're not your boss. And when they are your boss, you have to learn to set boundaries with them in such a way that doesn't make you look like an a-hole. <laughs> But I wanted to give you guys that little bit of advice because at the end of the day, being an empath means that you're usually very emotionally intelligent. It means you're mature. It means you've got something deeper going on uh, under the surface there that needs attention and needs constant upkeep. And I have more articles here, and I'm trying not to read all of them, but uh, sometimes you can't get around it. You know, at the end of the day, uh, I'm trying to give you guys resources of, of ways to think about being an empath or being sensitive that doesn't uh, act as a liability, but it serves you in this way to be powerful and to be strong and to be uh, salient with your own uh, feelings about yourself. You want to feel good about yourself for crying out loud, whether you're an empath or not. So this article is through uh, wellandgood.com. That's well plus good, a healthy mind. Uh, break the cycle of perfectionism with these three radical self-acceptance practices. At the end of the day, most of us, especially us sensitives, we overthink things. We overthink what people say and do to us. Uh, we're hypersensitive to harsh words and harsh language. And so at the end of the day, this is a way in which we can reinforce our own uh, evaluation of ourselves in a positive light. It says here, perfectionism is a tight, heavy energy that can remove joy from everyday moments and special occasions alike. It's the opposite of free thought and expression, mandating that everything fits a certain way. It tells us if we aren't doing enough or aren't a doing it a certain way, then we aren't really doing anything at all. As a recovering perfectionist, I've found that abandoning this mindset in favor of practicing self-acceptance is helpful for improving mental and physical health. In nature, things are varied as they are beautiful, and when we try to force something to be a certain way or to conform in the name of perfectionism, we actually stagnate energy as if trying to pin down an ocean wave. In this way, perfectionism can stop a natural flow or, in traditional Chinese medicine, the kwai that moves through all living things, is that ki? Qi? It's qi. Qi? <laughs> uh, that moves through all living things and give way to fragmented energy. It's been my experience that such fragmented energy can lead to stressful thoughts. And given that chronic stress may compromise health in myriad of ways, including an increased risk of inflammation, it is important to work on pivoting from perfectionism to self-acceptance. And since I'm fibroing today and I have inflammation, this was the perfect article, not just for me, but for you guys as well. <laughs>
In his ancient text, Tao Te Ching, Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu writes, because he accepts himself, the whole world accepts him. It's ironic, then, that so many strive for outward acceptance by exercising perfectionist tendencies rather than focusing on inward acceptance. Instead of working to conform in a certain way as a means to get external validation, we need to move uh, toward radical self-acceptance for where we are. To me, practicing radical self-acceptance means connecting to the deepest part of my energy and soul and letting that come forward in my life. I love the way you said that because that's so true with me too. I embrace this energy over material or superficial aspects of my life, like how I look or what I own. This fits in line with the more text in the Tao. True perfectionism seems imperfect, yet it is perfectly itself. And that kind of reminds me of something that I tell people is that you're imperfectly perfect, <laughs> you know. Someone who is able to exercise self-acceptance in favor of a perfectionist mindset is someone who has confidence and values the power of uniqueness. Absolutely. And that's what I try to tell you guys. Being uniquely yourself is an asset, not a hindrance or a liability, but you got to convince others of that being the case. It goes on to say, someone who is able to exercise self-acceptance in favor of a perfectionist mindset is someone who has confidence and values the power of uniqueness. No one can be exactly anyone but themselves. And so seeing the perfection of that also releases us from that the relentless energies of comparison and competition. And that's like me with the show. I would rather be uniquely myself then worry about whether or not I'm putting on the perfect show or not, you know, and I've learned to let go of perfectionism for my own uniqueness. And hopefully that's translating to you guys and putting on a good show for you that's both thoughtful and fun as well. And then it says here, where to start? Even if perfectionism has a stronghold in your life at this moment, you can start working to break free of it. Little by little, we can all shift our instincts and perspective to create new patterns that value self-worth, uniqueness, and radical self-acceptance. To learn how to practice self-acceptance and reject perfectionism in the process, uh, find three strategies below that have helped me. Number one, spend time in nature. Yes, Components of nature are never trying to be something. Rather, they simply are what they are. While walking, hiking, or biking in nature, or simply sitting in silence on a park bench or at the beach or anywhere outdoors available to you, focus on witnessing the non-trying aspect of Mother Nature. And that's what I try to teach you guys is that I don't come to this show confident because I'm so well put together always. We're human. Sometimes we come, you know, with shit on our mind and negative thoughts and depressing thoughts and we're uh, our mind sometimes is is really good and keen and other times it's a bag full of cats but what it is is about energy is intention when our energy is right our intentions are right it doesn't matter if we make little mistakes and that should translate into good vibes good energy for my audience and so you might want to practice that with people as well don't worry about how you come off just Worry about uh, being yourself and that your intentions are good and pure and make sure people know your respect. 
It goes on to say, contemplating, meditating, and opening up myself to the greater force of nature that runs through us and around us has helped me dissolve the idea of perfectionism by simply seeing what is really around me. And that's the thing. You know, that's a part of grounding techniques as well. When you filter and ground, it's about knowing what's real in the real world and learning to separate your own thoughts from the energies that you feel and learning how to ground back with nature, giving all that negative juju, negative energy inside you back to the earth. Go sit in nature and let that energy leave you while being, uh, while absorbing that mindful, thoughtful, beautiful nature energy around you. And then number two, try breath work. Consider how perfectionism energetically manifests in your body. Is it the tightness around your shoulders or your belly? The deep, hollow feeling in your heart, a heaviness around your throat. The more you can use self-awareness to break the pattern of perfectionism coming into your space, the more effectively you can avoid it. It is uh, in breaking a old, unhelpful pattern that we can create a new, beneficial one and a breathwork practice can help. It says here, try the expanding the gaps practice from my new book, not my book, but the, the, the author here. You are more than you think you are. To start, move your energy and focus entirely to your breath. Take full deep breaths into your belly until you uh, regulate your heart rate and relax. Wait until you feel more clarity and peaceful thoughts emerging anew and then come back to the present situation. You know, and that's what they do on Fitbit. There's a thing called mindfulness. It only takes a couple minutes, but you have that mindful breathing technique where you're mindfully breathing, and that's called mindfulness. Number three, uh, practice self-compassion. Research supports the notion that self-compassion can be a helpful intervention for a perfectionist mindset. So when feeling of perfectionism bubble up, work to not believe or act on them. Instead, take a compassionate approach by talking to yourself as you would to a child with deep compassion and love rather than harshness and love. Um, For instance, you could say to yourself, oh, there I am thinking I'm just the limited little self. Silly me. I know I am so much more than this could ever define me. It's just an old pattern. And that's why I've talked on previous episodes about negative self-talk is that oftentimes we just get in a pattern of negative self-talk. And, you know, I do it like for humor's sake. I'm a self-debasing humorist. I, you know, but, um, but, but if you really believe that you're not good enough, then you got to get out of these habits of negative self-talk. And that's really it. It's, it's just real simple. It's practice self-compassion. That was number three. Try breath work. That's number two. And spend time in nature. That's number three. And you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if you have serious mental or emotional health problems right now that, yeah, you should probably see a therapist. Uh, talk therapy is so good for people who are really, really struggling with mental health or emotional health problems or trauma. At the end of the day, there is no shame in that game. Uh, get the resources and go see somebody. A talk therapist is wonderful for people who need to get the stuff out and make sure that they understand their problems. And that's why, you know, I, I always say you are your best psychologist if you are a good person to yourself. If you're not nice to yourself, then you would be your own worst enemy. But if you're good to yourself and you understand your good intentions, oftentimes you can be your best psychotherapist because you can give yourself a pass for being human and flawed. There is nothing wrong with being flawed. We're all human. We all make mistakes, you know. 
And so lastly here I have from psychologytoday.com how to recognize what really makes you happy. Because I think a lot of people, they think they know what they want, but they don't really understand what it is. What's the mechanism that's making them unhappy? Is it a perfectionist mindset? Is it um, a sense of entitlement that you need more than you actually need? Or is it actually that you have certain needs that aren't being met? And at the end of the day, that's valid. So how to recognize what really makes you happy? Uh, The key points here, uh, to be happy, well, I don't want to give away the key points. Well, actually, it'd probably be easier just than to do the whole article. How about we just do that? Key points, to be happy and and have your life be an ongoing, intriguing adventure, it has to be dynamic and free of self-constricting insecurities. I think I'll go into them because it probably uh, elaborates on that. Number two, released from outdated fears, you can be more open and curious and ready to take on the risks associated with trying new things. And number three, if you feel isolated from others, then independent of how much wealth you have, you'll experience the unhappy malaise of alienation. So you have to be able to identify that. So the article starts, How Happiness Integrates the Values of Income, Relationships, and Purpose. Um, It may be that you've concentrated on gaining financial security as preliminary to giving serious thought to your personal happiness. Or maybe you believed achieving such security would secure your happiness. But what if your financial concerns actually obstructed the state of well-being that you, and frankly everybody else, seeks? And what if your now financial... You're now financially prosperous, but that hasn't actually brought about a state of well-being. This post centers on the different factors social scientists have linked to this ideal mental and emotional state. And although this seminal subject is hardly without controversy, a consensus does exist about what people generally require to feel good about themselves and satisfied with their lives. Preoccupation with your occupation can hinder opportunities for happiness. Happy individuals regard their life as an adventure. Yet, if you've single-mindedly focused on bettering your finances, it's possible that you've also come to experience your life as burdensome, more a source of worry and fear than wonder and gratification. Plus, once your income reaches a level of commensurate with your goals and and you recognize that you finally made it financially, you may also come to realize that your long-term issues and self-doubts haven't been resolved at all. Nor had you concretely planned what the free time now at your disposal could most beneficially be used for. Worse than this, the grind that characterize your work-related commitments may have become second nature to you, virtually a compulsion, such that altering your lifestyle might not even feel viable. Ironically, the freedom and self-determination you assumed making enough money would provide could, uh, could engender anxiety all on its own. Instead of creating happiness, it could create a distressing vacuum. It's like a newly retired person expecting that the day of their eagerly awaited retirement will intrinsically be fulfilling, but after uh, first delighting in this long sought-after freedom, they experience an emptiness much like lethargy or boredom or depression. So in short, money can definitely buy you more leisure time, uh, material goods, and enjoyable experiences. In itself, however, it can't do much to rectify deficits in your self-image or offer you a sense of purpose on its own. 
what contributes to happiness as much or more than one's income. Other writers have reported instances of people living in poverty who are happy, who are yet happy with their life. And uh, what accounts for their contentment is their gratefulness for what they have been gifted with, namely a caring family and community, which they, uh, they're at once a part of and nurtured by. On the contrary, if we feel isolated from those around us, then uh, without such affinity and independent of how much wealth we've accumulated, we'll experience the unfortunate malaise of alienation. And you know, you guys, I've told you guys that I live a pretty quiet and um, small life myself. I, I tend to self-isolate a lot for my own mental health and for uh, my own peace of mind. Um, but once I've had a few days where I'm kind of chugging along, feeling good again and feeling centered, I always tend to reach out to people. And I suggest it's a good idea to keep those people you love and care about at the forefront of your heart. And, uh, you know, doesn't hurt to let them know how you feel once in a while. Reach out to them before they go away. Plagued by mental and moral ill-being, emotionally we'll uh, continue to yearn for the con- contented state impossible to come by until we're able to feel we fit in, that we have a, gen- a genuine connection and sense of belonging to what's outside of us. Uh, we may feel financially secure, but not relate- relationally secure, and that gives us lacking in what otherwise would help ena- enable our well-being. And then it goes into the so-called golden triangle of happiness based on 20 years research study executed through Deakin University's partnership with Australian Unity Real Wellbeing posits that the three crucial aspects of happiness are standard of living, strong, validating relationships, which aren't necessarily romantic, and an uh, and an abiding sense of meaning, purpose, or achievement. Getting more into the particulars of these three key areas, we might add that once they're effectively addressed, individuals will no longer be held back by a primitively con- primitively conceived? I think it's previously conceived. That's a typo. Previously conceived threats of survival, usually, oh, primitively conceived threats of survival. Oh, they're talking, they're going back, going back to primordial days. Okay. Uh, sorry about that, you guys. Let me say that again. Individuals will no longer be held back by primitively conceived threats of survival, usually stemmed from the emotional instabilities of childhood. Released from uh, outdated fears, then by standing up to their potential limiting anxieties, they can be more out there, open and curious, and ready to take on the additional anxiety and risks associated with trying new things. After all, if living is to be an ongoing, ever-intriguing adventure, it has to be dynamic. So, as long as we're saddled with mental and emotional insecurities, we won't be prepared to engage in life fully, whether by ourselves, with others, or with our physical surroundings. Courage and confidence blossom when we're able to quell former anxieties that in various ways may have kept us stuck in life. And once we can uh, disentangle from these self confinements, our much expanded comfort zone will free us to feel all our feelings, not just the safe ones that uh, kept us closed off from such, uh, from so much life might have to offer. And it can hardly be overemphasized that done correctly, such an engagement entails a creative individualistic balancing act 
of childlike immediate pleasures with more adult pleasure restricting long-term goals and aspirations. So it's saying we can uh, give in to these flights of fancy all the while keeping our adult interdisciplinarian in charge. Newly awake to possibilities we hadn't before open to, we can envision, welcome, and experiment with the things that felt too scary when our modus operandi was too often one of defensive avoidance. From this broadened perspective, our life can take on dimensions yielding a level of contentment earlier unavailable to us. Uh, Adam Omery in his post, The Science of Happiness, downplays the importance of finances and tersely outlines the components of well-being by stating, quote, overall being happy is to live with mindfulness, meaning, and purpose. That's right. And it's up to each individual to decide, based on their particular values, just what purpose they wish to pursue. And then the author talks about how he's going to get to the more details in a how-to level of specificity in his next post, which I'm not going to read. So here it says, here I'll just allude to some elements that more explicitly contribute to a state of well-being. And that includes, but is hardly confined to, fostering dietary health, fitness, and resilience, cultivating authenticity, uh, gratitude, and forgiveness for both yourself and others, advancing your motivation and sense of self-worth, but without arrogance or egotism, and spending more time returning to and commuting with nature. That's right. (laughs) I love nature. Anyways, that was just part one of a three-part series, and I might go into that later on down the road, but I just wanted you guys to understand that um, being a human is hard, being an adult is even harder, and being an adult without a lot of finances is even harder than that. And that tends to really speak to me right now, because right now Rebecca and I are dealing with a lot of financial upsets and uh, disappointments. Our car, our truck has this silly thing on it where since 2013... We've been having this thing where it, it times out and locks us out like a security thing, locks us out for 10 minutes and then we're stuck. And then it made her late for work today. And uh, it's a frustrating mess because I've talked to GM and they didn't do anything. And I talked to um, the guy who I bought the truck from down in California and he's like, well, what you're talking about shouldn't even be in your vehicle and it's going to cost you upwards of $700. And I was like, yeah, I get that. But how is this my fault? It's a fucking manufacturing error, you know? And so he's like, I know, but you know, too much time has passed and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I know, but how do I convince GM it's their fucking fault? They don't want to take responsibility for it, you know? So my point is, is that um, being happy uh, is is not about your finances. It's not about how clean your house is, although all those things can help. Um, but I do believe it's it's like getting your life into a working order that suits your sensibilities, you know? Anyways, at the end of the day, being sensitive in a world full of 
crazy, unsensitive lunatics is fucking hard. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I mean, there is no perfect solution for everyone. And that's why I say, I try to give you guys advice, but, um, but that works for me. And so that's why I read articles, because uh, I'm hoping that uh, these are trained clinicians who have a better understanding of psychology than I do, even though I'm pretty darn good at it. But I want to try to give advice that works for the most amount of people. You know, contrary to popular belief, um, a lot of people think that either I'm not really an empath because I'm too tough looking or because I'm a dude or because I have a beard or they think that um, I've got some mental health problem and uh, I have to fixate on this hypersensitivity for an advanced sense of um, superiority and a special talent that others don't have. And that's kind of what I was talking about on that previous article is that if you allow your hypersensitivity to overwhelm you, uh, you can actually gain a sense uh, that your life and your values are more important than everybody else's. And um, uh, that seems to be the norm for a lot of quote unquote normal people. But for us empaths, we're held to a higher uh, level in the sense that um, we should be, because we're sensitive and empathetic, we should also be emotionally mature enough to understand when we're being selfish, you know, that when we um, hang our sense of superiority or our sense of worth on being an energetic empath or being a healer or being whatever, uh, being a highly sensitive person, um, we should wear that with a with a sense of pride, uh, but not with a sense of superiority. And I want you guys who might be struggling with being hypersensitive to understand that you gotta grow a thicker skin, or else you're gonna always be bogged down by th negative thoughts and negative experiences, and you're gonna give too much time and energy to your hypersensitivity than to giving your time and energy to your, you know, more positive things like trying to do something good with your life or trying to meet good people or trying to advance in your career or whatever. But at the end of the day, we're born with this hypersensitivity. And so it's not like we can just tune it out, but there are ways where we can perceive it differently, if you know what I mean. And the only way I can explain that is um, I was... I, I, there was a doctor on YouTube who was trying to teach people how uh, they can um, minimize or get rid of their long-term tinnitus. If you don't know, tinnitus is a thing where you get that ringing in your ears. And what he said was, is we have this tendency with tinnitus to pay too much attention to it. And what that actually does is it actually strengthens the connection from your brain to your ears. In other words, you're paying so much attention to this ringing in your ears that you actually make it louder. And that through uh, exercising a bit of distraction, if you will, you can either use white noise or you can use movies in the background when you go to bed. But when you're having the worst tinnitus, they say the best way to get rid of it is to slowly but surely stop giving it power. And this works with tinnitus, this works with mental health problems and impending thoughts of doom and anxiety, this works with sometimes depression, but at the end of the day, we feed into our problems by giving them more weight and more energy than they rightfully deserve. 
And as a result of that, our perspective has to change. Our perspective has to stop paying all the attention to the negative thing in our life, perhaps for something else, something more positive, something more enjoyable, something more relaxing. And at the end of the day, whether it be tinnitus or anxiety or whatever you're going through, we give and feed this thing energy based on giving it too much attention. And so when you start to learn coping mechanisms and ways to distract, you actually start changing your perspective slowly but surely to the point where you're not ruled by your anxiety, you're not ruled by your tinnitus, you're not ruled by these impending thoughts, you're actually ruled by something greater, better, stronger, more positive, more loving, more free, more calm. And so the reason why I gave you those uh, articles is because I want people to understand that it doesn't fucking matter if others understand that you're an empath. Being sensitive, we have this tendency to get these profound feelings, these profound thoughts in our minds, and we're like, wow, that was profound. And we have this rich emotional life, and uh, oftentimes the world doesn't want to share that with you, with us, you know, they don't, they don't care. And uh, that was the hardest lesson I had to get through was um, realizing that the world and people don't fucking care. <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah, shut up. I got my own shit. And you're like, what? Fuck you. You know, you can get really bent out of shape when you realize that uh, some people just aren't necessarily energetically in your corner. But to quote George Carlin, you know, he's like, just because I like you doesn't mean I want to hear all your dumb stories, you know? So, at the end of the day, I mean, I love my friends, all of my friends equally. Uh, I do have some favorites in there. But my point is, is that that doesn't necessarily mean I want to hear all their sob stories. At the end of the day, I do want to hear about the things that are most important to them. But that doesn't mean that I want to hear a 47-minute story of how they microwaved a burrito, you know what I mean? But living with mental health imperfections, living with a hard life and a hard job and um, tough, mean people around, They're, everyone's all trying to be cool, everybody's all trying to be studly, everybody's all trying to be their best and brightest, and uh, there's a lot of people out there that aren't so best and bright anymore, you know? You're, we're talking about a society that for all intents and purposes, don't understand a greater utility and sensitivity in being kind, in being um, jovial and lighthearted and fun-loving. And so here we're trying to show you guys that, you know, you might be uh, the only person in your household or the only person uh, amongst your friends that feels the way you feel, and that's okay. But we all need friends. We all need support groups. We all need people that can uh, share uh, our thoughts and feelings with. And yes, it helps when people understand what we're going through and can commiserate on that. And um, sometimes as an empath, being that we're only 20% strong in our society, that's, that means 80% of all of our society either doesn't know it doesn't believe it or doesn't want to talk about it. And so at the end of the day, we may, it's a challenge sometimes to find our empath tribe, you know. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's what all of this was about. This is about learning how to be emotionally intelligent, 
learning how to let others be their imperfect selves and give giving yourself a, a leeway to be your own imperfect self as well. Um, there's a lot of immature, uh, insensitive people in this world. And uh, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, uh, tolerate the intolerable. But, um, you know, it, we should, though, understand the difference between um, narcissists and sociopaths and predators from just your average person that just, you know, some people are insecure and they don't even mean to be, you know, they just are. They're just being themselves and oftentimes they forget our proclivities, you know, so we have to be forgiving. And we have to be forgiving that our job's not perfect. We have to be forgiving that our finances, maybe we're broke. Maybe we're trying to go back to school. Maybe we're trying to work a job. Maybe we're trying to find something better, more worthy of our intellect, more worthy of our talents. Hey, that's where I'm at. That's why I'm doing this. And you know what? I'll be honest with you guys. I get fucking pissed off that more people don't listen, that more people don't tune in, that more people don't try to help out or contribute because I'm doing this for virtually free, you guys. And, you know, I'm not a petty person. I don't expect to make a lot of money from this. But yes, it would be nice to know that people give a shit and that they want to see this succeed. And 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 they prove that. And they prove that through sharing the show. And they prove that through helping me a buck or two per month for with tips or become a, a, a patron on Patreon. You know, I wish that I wish I knew more to what effect I was having a positive impact on people's lives. Frankly, it hurts my feelings sometimes. But with all that being said, you guys, I'm not petty. I'm not angry. Uh, there's there's nothing but love coming from me for my audience and coming uh to all people who are just struggling to make sense of their life and make sense of this world. And that's why the part of me that loves people and the part of me that cares is much more powerful than that petty part of me that wants to be validated or rewarded. But I do believe if you're good at something that you should get paid a little something for it, you know? And um, I come here uh, very, very unlike most people. Most people don't give anything to anyone. They're not, you know, they're not selfless people. There's a lot of people now that are just like me, 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 me. And you're like, oh God, how do we teach people to love? How do we teach people to care? How do we teach people to be more giving and to, um, again, make life more of an adventure? And why I'm doing this is not only to help people, but I literally am trying to do all the things I said on this episode, living that more adventurous life, taking uh, certain risks, being more daring and bold, and uh, being okay with whatever those circumstances are. And, you know, sometimes I meet great, wonderful, intelligent, fun, smart people. And sometimes I meet sociopaths and predators that want to stick it to me for no reason at all. They don't even know me. So at the end of the day, you know, there's a certain uh, uh, weird thing about being a public figure is that you want to bring people into your life. You want to help them. You want to make them understand uh, all these wonderful, beautiful things that are inside of them. Um, but sometimes you attract the wrong people and then you end up um, with a bunch of haters at your door trying to tell you that you suck <clears throat> or trying to tell you you're not good enough or trying to tell you hang it up. And, and those people in your life, you guys, let me tell you, those are the sociopaths. 
Those are the narcissists. Those are the assholes. Don't listen to them. They're only saying and doing those things because they get joy out of hurting others. And we we do not listen. We listen to our hearts and we do what's right for us. And that's what it's all about. So at the end of the day, I'm very grateful for my audience and I'm very grateful for you guys. But if you could help me out, we're trying to get sponsors. We're trying to get big enough to really turn this into a resource for people struggling with mental health problems, people who are looking for a little boost in their lives of greater positivity and positivity and kindness and joy. We're looking to make this for regular working people to feel like uh, this is where we go when we're feeling down at the job and we want people who can uh, stick it to capitalism and corporations and their uh, insidious agendas. That's what it's all about too. But at the end of the day, I don't get paid much for this, but I still love what I'm doing and I love my wife and I'm trying to make this sustainable for myself and for my wife and for you guys. And so my uh, level of gratitude is much, much bigger than our, my, my little petty attitudes that I get when I'm feeling sorry for myself. You know, it's just being human is being human, you guys, and there ain't no shame in that. You know, when we're wrestling with petty thoughts, when we're wrestling with anger and frustration, we have to ask, like the article said, ask why. Why am I feeling this way? And what can I do to resolve it? And what it boils down to is I was feeling uh, uh, upset that um, uh, I'm not getting validated, that I'm not getting rewarded for my efforts. And uh, I had to realize that, guess what, Brian, you're going to have to do this for a better reason than monetary reward. You're going to have to do this for people and you have to mean it. You have to mean it. And I do. And that's the thing that I've learned throughout all this. But being an empath, man, you're just naturally sensitive. We're all sensitive. And it's easy to look at this world and think pessimistic thoughts. But you guys, enjoy this life. Find your adventure. Find your joy. Find your love. And find those you can share this life with, whether it be romantic or non-romantic. Find your friends. Find your empath tribe. And I swear to you guys, life is worth living. And it gets so much better from here, you guys. If you want to be a part of the conversation, come on over to my, uh, uh, well, Twitter for, for now. <laughs> come on over to my Instagram. I'll be there at Chef Bright Comedy uh, or on Instagram, Surviving Empathy Podcast. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter and I'm on uh, Instagram. Rebecca is on Instagram at Spooky Nerdy Gal. Uh, but you guys, uh, we all get down and discouraged. We all get upset. We all get pissed off and kick grass and kick dirt from time to time. It's normal. Uh, don't apologize for that. What you do is you make sure you don't take it out on the wrong people and you make sure you understand why you're feeling that way. Like me, I'm upset at, a, at about a good many things, but it's not something that I want to put and take out on you energetically because you are the reason why I do this because I love good people. Good people. There's a lot of bad people, but there's good people out there too. And uh, I have to remind myself of that every single day. So thank you guys. We'll be back one more time this week. We absolutely adore you. We thank you for your help. If you want to contribute, come on over to my link tree. That's linktree forward slash comedy or become a patron. Uh, it's Patreon forward slash comedy. Uh, you guys, we absolutely adore you guys. Life is hard. Let's make it easier together. 
love and support and kindness and courtesy is where it's at. That's what emotionally intelligent people do, and that's what we should be doing. Have a good day, you guys. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.